Good morning, and thanks for joining us for Resurrection Day. Uh, we, as Christians, believe this is one of the most important days of the year because it's on this day that we remember that Jesus died and he rose again, uh, and that he lives forever at the right hand of God and is our great high priest standing on our behalf. And so we believe that and trust that and celebrate that every single day, but we especially celebrate it today as we remember what Christ has done for us. So today in these very odd times and years, we praise God that even COVID could not stop our celebration of Jesus's resurrection from the dead. So if you will, just uh, open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 9. We'll be in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And you can just pause this video right now as you turn there. Um, But I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you will, just before we dive into this text and look at what it means and see how it applies to our own lives, if you will, just join me in a moment of prayer as we ask God to open our hearts, to open our eyes, to help shape us and transform us more into Christ's image. And so let's just pray together uh, at this moment. Father God, we thank you for the beautiful truth of the resurrection. We thank you that Jesus is a friend of sinners, as we'll see today. God, we thank you that we have a great hope, a great high priest. We have peace, Father, and we have peace with you. Father, there is now no condemnation for us who are in Jesus Christ, and we celebrate that today. And as we look back and we remember what Jesus has done for us, I pray that you will stir up our hearts to love and obey and treasure him even more. May we adore Jesus more in this hour than we did before. May we look and long for his return and for the day that we will get to feast at the kingdom's table in his presence. God, we love you. We thank you for your great redemption in him. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. You know, a good doctor is trained in the art of triage. Through triage, the doctor discerns who needs help, what ailment or ailments he needs to confront first. He looks and sees what life-threatening challenges face his patients. He knows the difference between a minor heart murmur and a heart attack. 
between a stomach ache and a cancer. He knows the difference between allergies and pneumonia. He's able to discern what the real problem is. He walks into the room, his eyes scanning over his patients, silently assessing their needs, listening to their symptoms, looking at their charts, and then he provides his care. Now, Jesus is a divine, loving physician who's at work in the lives of sinners. Matthew displays his loving care for the spiritually sick. With every patient, he knew exactly what they needed. The leper needed a loving touch, illustrating that his alienation was finally over. The centurion needed to hear that the kingdom's table would be open to Gentiles like him, who would come from the east and west to dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The disciples and the scribes needed to see him as the suffering servant who had come to bear the consequences of their fall. The demoniacs needed, to, needed a display of the spiritual power in him that would be able to release them from their demonic oppressors. Now, in all of these accounts, Matthew shows that these people had the same problem. They were fallen people who suffered in a fallen world. And what's more, they needed the same solution. They needed Jesus himself. So fallen people suffering in a fallen world who need the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, to help them in their fall. At the end of the day, we are all sick sinners in need of a Savior. We are all ill. We have ailments. We have a deadly cancer inside of us. And Jesus is the great physician who in his triage of our infirmity knows our greatest need and knows exactly how to serve us, how to care for us, and how to save us. As we will see, Jesus came not to just heal our physical illnesses, our diseases, our, our uh, worldly problems. He came to heal the real underlying issue. He came to heal this deeper, deadlier spiritual condition called sin. My prayer is that as we go through Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, that we will bask in the glory that Jesus, our friend and our physician, has come to heal our hearts and bring us back to God. The entire testimony of Scripture leads us to see that much greater than our need to be rid of suffering, we have a more urgent need to be rid of our sin and guilt, to be rid of condemnation. So I think from this text in Matthew 9, we will see three important redemptive truths. We'll see first that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. Second, he invites sinners to feast at his table. And third, his friendship with sinners is ultimately displayed through his death and resurrection. So let's just look at this first redemptive truth. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 2 says this, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. It's clear what these people were expecting. They expected Jesus to heal their paralytic friend. I mean, after all, Matthew talks about their exemplary faith in bringing the man to Jesus. They clearly expected Jesus to do something, to act on the man's behalf. 
so that he could walk again. However, I don't think any of them expected to hear what Jesus said to the man first. More than talking about his paralysis, before he even mentions the man's physical ailment, Jesus tells him to take heart because his sins are forgiven. I think Jesus' initial words to this paralyzed man are instructive. The man's evident problem, the, the problem that we could see, the problem that was visible to everyone else was that he could not walk. However, Jesus addresses the man's sin before he ever speaks of the man's paralysis. Now, what sort of triage is this? I mean, what sort of doctor is Jesus that there's a clear, evident problem? It's a major problem. And yet, Jesus doesn't address the evident problem. He addresses the man's sin. Could Jesus not see that the people wanted him to heal their friend of his paralysis, not to take him through a theology of sin, not to talk, talk to him about his sin. So, so what's going on here? And I think when we look a little deeper underneath the surface, we see that by a, a, addressing the man's sins first, Jesus acknowledges the man's greatest need, which was not for physical healing, but for forgiveness. This is true for everyone, and it's especially true for us today. We may think that our greatest need is for all of our sufferings to go away. We may think that the greatest need that we have is for cancer to be eradicated, to find a cure for COVID-19, to, to have our poverty remedied, to have our bellies full and our lives full of daily happiness. We may think that that's the most evident need in our lives. And yet, the truth of the gospel reminds us that our big, biggest need is none of those things. Our biggest need and our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sins through the power and authority of Jesus Christ. We need Jesus. Sin is the biggest problem that you have. Rebellion against God, the lingering transgression that is in your heart that seeks to go in a totally different direction than God. That needs to be fixed long before your body's fixed. That needs to be fixed long before all these external problems need to be fixed. The greatest issue in your life is that you are a sinner separated from God who has offended God and been alienated from His presence. Jesus has come to solve that. We see this truth displayed again and again and again in the Scriptures. When the crowds came to Jesus in John 6, for example, they came to Him because He could give them bread. He was able to miraculously multiply bread, and so they, they wanted to follow Him. They wanted to make Him king, and yet Jesus taught them that physical bread would leave them hungry again. It was only through Him who was the bread of life, that they could be satisfied and never again hunger spiritually. He was talking to the Samaritan woman, and Jesus revealed to her her need for a water greater than the water from the well, a water that could forever quench her thirst. And then when Jesus came to Mary and Martha shortly after Lazarus' death, he proved to them that more than needing their brother back, more than needing him to come and heal their brother. They needed him who is the resurrection and the life. And now here we have this paralytic, paralytic, and Jesus shows once again, even greater than this man's need to regain the use of his legs, even greater than his need to walk again, the man needed a restored spiritual walk 
with the Lord, a walk that would be free from condemnation and guilt. This was incredibly good news to hear from the lips of Jesus. Uh, lips of Jesus. Even in his paralyzed state, this man could take heart or take courage because his sins were forgiven the moment he met Jesus. I think it's worth considering. How can Jesus tell this man, take heart, when this man's entire life is confined to bed? The answer is that to have a restored relationship with God is the greatest blessing the paralytic could ever have. Scripture says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. True blessing in its fullest sense has little to do with your health. It has little to do with your bank account. It has little to do with your temporal happiness. But it has everything to do with you being made right with God, with you being forgiven of your sins. We can take heart even when all else goes wrong in the world because if we have been made right with God, that is all we absolutely need is to have our God back. Everything else could be lost. Having lame legs but no condemnation, that's the real miracle in this story. We so often get focused on the paralytic taking up his bed and walking again, but the real miraculous work was that his sins were absolutely eradicated. His sins were expunged. His guilt was washed away. This sinner, who no doctor, no physical doctor could ever bring him back to God, has now been given reconciliation with God. That's the true story. That's the real focus of Matthew's narrative here. He could not walk for the moment, but in Jesus, the burden of sin was lifted away. Now, Jesus' words to the paralytic were, I think, understandably troubling to those who heard them. Jesus was not claiming an indirect authority to absolve the man's sin. He's not standing like some father out there saying, your sins are absolved. He's not claiming any kind of indirect ability to wipe away this man's sin. He's claiming to have direct authority to forgive. He's claiming to have the absolute power to forgive this man's sin. Several, several scribes that were watching this were naturally offended by this. It says, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Blaspheming is when you speak out against God in a way that's untrue, or if you claim to be God, if you attribute to yourself some attribute that belongs to God alone. And it should be understood that they would have been absolutely right in their initial offense if Jesus was a mere man claiming to have an authority that belonged to God alone. We know from the Bible that sin is ultimately an offense against God, which means that only God can wipe away the transgression. Only God can forgive the sin. No mere man has the right or authority to forgive a person of their trespass against God. I, as a man, have no ability to take away your sin guilt. I have no authority, no, no clergy, no church, no person at all has the ability to, to take away sin in and of themselves. We have an indirect authority to proclaim forgiveness through the gospel in Jesus Christ. But Jesus alone has the authority 
to forgive sin. That's what he was claiming. And these scribes just could not get that. They could not understand how this man standing before them could claim to have the authority of God. But what they missed was that Jesus was no mere man. Jesus was not just a mere rabbi claiming to have authority. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. I think Jesus knew that his words offended the scribes. It says that he saw their thoughts. He, he saw that they had taken up an offense. And I think he obviously knew that a claim to have the authority of God to forgive sin would need to be demonstrated. To just say that and not be able to give evidence for that would be blasphemy in some way. But the scribes' accusation about Jesus just being a man who's blaspheming and taking on himself the the authority of God shows that they don't quite understand who it is standing in front of them. And that's the lack of understanding that must be rectified in this text. Jesus is not just a human being saying these things. He is the Son of Man. That's what He calls Himself. He is the Son of Man. Before them stood the one to whom all authority and all dominion had been given, according to Daniel seven thirteen and 14. This is the one who approached the Ancient of Days, God himself, and was handed authority on heaven and earth to whom every tribe and nation and tongue would bow their knee and worship and serve him alone. So in order to demonstrate that he was speaking the truth, that he was the Son of Man, Jesus gave them a sign. You know, it's much easier, it would have been much easier for Jesus to simply say, your sins are forgiven, than it is to say, rise up and walk. Anyone could go around claiming and pretending to have the authority to forgive sin and yet have no way to visibly prove that the person's sins had been forgiven. Imagine a person just walking up to you and saying, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, and yet having no ability to prove that that's true. So Jesus decides to do the harder work, to show them that indeed he does have the ability to wipe away this man's sin. He looks at the young man, he tells the paralytic, and he tells him to get up. That's much harder. Now imagine if Jesus had told this young man, your sins are forgiven. They had a problem with his authority. And then Jesus said to the man, get up and walk, and the man never got up and walked. There'd be a problem with that. But when the man gets up and he takes up his bed and he goes home, it's undeniable validation that Jesus was indeed speaking the truth. That Jesus was indeed the Son of Man who held the authority of God to forgive sin. Matthew writes, When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now fear with glory is the proper response when people see a manifestation of God's work. In the Old Testament, whenever God's work was made manifest, the result typically was that his people uh, demonstrated fear and praise. I think of 1 Kings 18 uh, when, it, when, it comes to, when it comes to mind with uh, fear and praise or fear and glory. When, when Elijah was challenging Ahab and the prophets of Baal, he called down fire from heaven, the fire fell, 
wiped out his burnt offering, the people fell on their faces. That's the fear. They fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. That's the glory. So what the, the point of that is, is that's a typical thing. When people see a manifestation of God's work is to have fear and to glorify him. And that's what the people do here. They completely understand that what they had just witnessed was a work of God. This was an act of God. They had just witnessed God's hand intervening into, the situ- into this young man's situation, causing him to walk again. Now, I, I do think, as great as that is, Matthew gives us a hint that the people still did not fully understand who Jesus was. They knew that through Jesus, an act of God had been committed. An act of God had happened right before their eyes. But they still didn't understand that Jesus was God. Knowledge of God's work and knowledge of God are different things. They glorified God who had given authority to men. And so in their eyes, Jesus was a man who had divine authority, but they were blind to the fact that Jesus was a visitation of God himself. Jesus was God in flesh. Jesus wasn't just a man wielding God's authority. He was God clothed in humanity, God walking among us. This was something that people, in particular the disciples, would not get till after Jesus rose from the grave. People would not have that clear insight that this is God in flesh. God who's walking among them. God who has all authority. And they wouldn't see that clearly until after the resurrection. Had they understood, one of the things I think we would have seen is they would have all turned and asked him to forgive them. Isn't that interesting? They, they see that this... Man has authority to forgive sins. He just makes his paralytic rise up and walk. They all marvel. They glorify God. And then they go home. If they'd have understood who it was standing in front of them, they would have clung to him. They would have seen that he is not just the one who can demonstrate a great act of authority. He is the one who has the authority to forgive their sins. My friends, today we invite you not just to marvel at Christ and his authority. Not just to stand in awe of who Jesus is, but to know that he's the one that can take your sin. Not just to marvel at the greatness of Christ and then to miss that he's the one that can take away your guilt. He's the one that can wipe away your alienation from God and who can bring you back to him. Marvel at Jesus, yes, but then cling to him as the one who has the ability to forgive even your sins, however deep and dark they may be, however shameful they may be. You may think you can never tell another soul about what you have done and and nobody would ever accept you again if they knew exactly all the sins that you committed. And yet, Jesus is the one who has the authority. And if you come and cling to him, he is the one who can wipe away that sin. Jesus shows that he's the one who has come for sinners in order to forgive their transgression, in order to forgive their trespasses against God. Now we get to redemptive truth number two. Redemptive truth number one is simply that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. That's a great truth. But imagine if Jesus had the authority to forgive sin, but didn't really care for sinners. That's bad news. 
The good news is, is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, and he invites sinners to feast at his table. He loves sinners. He's a friend of sinners. In ancient Judea, public sinners were to be avoided. You did not get around people who were known transgressors. It was taboo to associate with anyone unclean, which included tax collectors who often cheated by taking more than was due. We think of Zacchaeus, who, who after he met Jesus, paid back all the people that he cheated. They were also people who consorted with Israel's Gentile oppressors. And so, by and large, they were people who were unclean and were to be shunned, not to be, uh, not to be brought into friendship. They were lumped in with thieves and murderers. No self-respecting Jew would have ever been caught dead with the sorts of people that Jesus drew to himself. And yet, Jesus' friendship with such people foreshadows the good news that he had come to restore friendship with God and sinful humanity. The calling of Matthew and the feast with sinners illustrates this truth clearly. Jesus had come for these people. Jesus had come for the people that everybody else was shunning. Jesus had come for the outcast, for the unclean, for the unhealthy, for the vile. It says this in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Just as the paralytic rose and took up his bed and went home at Jesus' command, so also Matthew at Jesus' command, rises and leaves his profession to follow Jesus. Jesus changes the lives of even tax collectors, traitors, thieves, murderers, scoundrels. And so we're reminded once again, we're reminded once again of the great reversal that has come in Jesus. Up to this point, elite scribes and Religious Pharisees have not yet followed Jesus. They have not yet dropped everything to come with their Messiah and their Savior, the one who had come to bring them back to God. They were still watching and waiting and judging and being critical. And and if anyone should have been ready to receive him, it should have been them. And yet, forming the ranks of Jesus' disciples, of the disciples of the Son of Man, are the uneducated and poor fishermen. Those of the sinful tax collectors. The proud, the self-righteous, the self-sufficient, the elite are passed over. While the broken, the low, the outcast, the scum of the earth are taken in. That's what Jesus has come for. He didn't come for those who exalted themselves and to see themselves as self-righteous. He came to save them. But ultimately, he had come for those who were at the bottom of the barrel, the, 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 the bottom of depravity, to save even the worst of sinners, the, to save chiefs of sinners, to save prostitutes, to save tax collectors, to save murderers, to save hypocrites like me. Now, Jesus further demonstrates his love for these sinners, not just by calling them to follow him, but by eating with them. 
It says in verse 10, And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, back in those days, to recline with someone at the table was a sign of friendship. I mean, these are tight-knit quarters. These aren't high-level tables with chairs around them. This is like reclining on a pillow, eating on the floor with other people. And so you're, you're in elbow to elbow with these people, definitely not social distancing with them, okay? And so you're sitting there dipping your hand into their bowl, eating food together, passing around cups of wine. You're, you're aligning yourself with them. You're identifying with them. You're calling them publicly your friends. And so when you ate with someone, you were their friend. You were publicly saying, I and these people have communion and fellowship together. Now that Jesus reclined at the table with sinners is a visible representation of what he has come to bring us through the gospel. For the Pharisees to have a self-proclaiming Messiah eating with sinners was a problem. This was a problem. The Jews of Jesus' days were expecting a Messiah who would come, he would defeat their enemies, chase off the Romans, he would judge sinners like Matthew. He would judge sinners like the prostitute. He would judge sinners like Zacchaeus and that centurion. He would drive out the unclean from Israel and reestablish Israel as a major world superpower. And yet Jesus broke their mold. He ruined all their expectations as he extended not hostility, but friendship to sinners. He doesn't set up a feast with all the self-righteous. He sets up a feast with sinners, tax collectors, smelly, dirty, homeless people, people who had done incredibly egregious sins, the kind of people that the Pharisees would have crinkled their nose at as they walked by. And yet, where do we find the Lord of the universe, the Son of Man to whom all authority has been given, reclining at a table, hand in hand, elbow in elbow, passing cups, passing grain, eating with sinners? Pharisees just did not know what to do with that. They openly questioned the disciples, how does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. Now they're not so much as asking a question as they are trying to make an accusation. What kind of man is this? What kind of rabbi do you guys have? You think this guy's the Messiah? You think this guy is the Davidic king? I mean, look at who he's eating with. It's more of an accusation than it is a question. Now, Jesus has already addressed the the concerns of the scribes when they accuse him of blasphemy, and now he turns and he addresses the Pharisees of their complaint. He confronts them directly, and he says, those who are well are, have, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Now, I think first what Jesus does is he confronts their errant messianic expectations. Just as one would expect a doctor to be found among the sick, so also these Pharisees can expect to find the Son of Man who holds the power of forgiveness 
to be among sinners. The one who can heal people of their sin can be found where? And should be found where? With sinners. Just like a doctor who can heal sicknesses should be found around, among uh, sick people, not healthy people. The Pharisees wanted the son of David, a warrior, uh, an avenger. But they failed to see that the son of David was also a friend of the spiritually sick. And the irony of it all was that by inviting sinners to his side, Jesus was showing himself as the true Davidic king. He wasn't doing anything much different than what King David did when David was in power. When, when, when we get to Saul in 1 Samuel 14, 52, Saul's attaching himself to all the strong and all the valiant, all the powerful, all those who are impressive people. We know that Saul is portrayed as an arrogant king who eventually falls. But David's a humble king. And who does he gather around himself? On well, 1 Samuel 22, 2, it says that he gathers those who are in distress those who were in debt, those who were bitter in soul. So in all this irony, they wanted the Davidic king who would chase off enemies, and instead they found the Davidic king who was drawing those who were embittered in soul, those who were indebted spiritually and morally to God. He was drawing all who were spiritually distressed instead of attaching himself to all the strong and righteous people that were walking around. Reclining at the table signified the kind of work Jesus has come to do for you. He had come so that sinners can enjoy fellowship with God. He eats and drinks and forecasts the truth that he proclaimed in Matthew eight eleven, that unexpected people would come and recline at the kingdom's table. People that every other self-righteous person would have written off and would have banned from the kingdom feast. He invites the unexpected. He invites the scoundrels. He invites Gentiles from east and west to sit at his table and feast. And here he demonstrates that by eating with sinners. Jesus, as the divine physician, came for these sick in order to make them well. Now, the true tragedy in this story is that those who proudly considered themselves spiritually well, overlooked their own need for the doctor's healing. (coughs) As he addressed their messianic expectations, he begins to show them that they have a very deep-seated heart problem. They want this Davidic warrior who's not going to associate with sinners, and yet the the irony of it, the, the thing that's happening the most here, is that it's showing that they have a love problem. They have a lack of mercy that displeases God. They are sick. They think themselves as healthy. They think of themselves as well. They think of themselves as in no need of this doctor's help. And yet, they are the ones that are sick. He quotes to them Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, which in context speaks of Israel's sin and its pseudo-repentance. Back in Hosea 6, when Israel had believed that they were right with God, they believed so because they were making the right sacrifices. They were keeping up the temple feast. They were doing all these religious things that God had told them and commanded them to do. And yet, they were oppressing their brothers and sisters. They were calling people into debt and exacting interest on them. 
They were selling their brothers and sisters into slavery. They would not show mercy, hesed, steadfast love for God and his people. With all their religiosity, they were failing at the real law of God, which was to love God and love their neighbor as themselves. But in God's eyes, it's far better to love and to be merciful than to be supra-religious. It's better to be loving and merciful than it is to offer him thousands and thousands of burnt offerings every day. God's not so much concerned with the religious movement or, or, or going through the motions of your religiosity. He cares more about your love for people. Jesus loved sinners. He was righteous God himself who had come to bring mercy and grace to God's people. Mercy and grace to sinners. And yet these Pharisees, for some reason, refused to show mercy on those people. They cast them down as those sinners. Those tax collectors. Our Savior ate with those tax collectors and sinners to proclaim that he had brought a restoration of friendship with God. When we act like those people are, are below us or those people are, are, are scoundrels or those people will never make it to heaven. We are acting in a way that is contrary to what Jesus came to do. And yet, when we invite people to our table, when we invite people to experience the hospitality, when we invite people to experience the feast in our home, in our own kitchens, in our, from our own food, we are inviting them to taste and see what we have tasted and seen. Taste and see the Lord is good. Taste and see the gospel sweet. When we invite people in, when we invite those people into our homes. We show that God has saved those people just like he has saved us. We are showing that God in Christ is inviting them into the feast. He is inviting guilty sinners to the kingdom's table so that they can be friends with God once more. My friends, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Corpses in our sin. And yet God in his great sovereignty and grace drew us to himself, called us out of the grave, has given us a place in Christ. Who are we to talk about those people? Who are we to talk about those people who are unsavable? It's not up for us. It's not up to us to make those kind of judgments. If God has saved us, he can save any sinner. If God has saved us, he can save the worst hypocrite. If God has saved us, he can save the worst tax collector. Jesus changes lives. Jesus saves. So we have that first redemptive truth. Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. Second redemptive truth. Jesus invites sinners to feast at his table. And now we get to the third redemptive truth. Jesus' friendship with sinners is ultimately displayed through his death and resurrection. Now, the, the text that we are in in Matthew 9 leaves us with a glaring problem. Jesus claims to forgive this man's sin. He claims to, to eat and feast with 
uh, tax collectors and sinners, showing that there's reconciliation with God and restoration with God and that sinners can be healed from their sin. The problem is, though, that everywhere in the Old Testament you see forgiveness happening. It always happens through an atoning sacrifice. It always happens through the, the sacrificial death of a lamb or, or, or uh, through the shedding of blood. I mean, even Hebrews 9.22 puts it this way. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the question is, is how can Jesus offer this paralytic and these sinners like, uh, that, that are like the paralytic forgiveness? How can Jesus offer that? And I think in this way, Matthew 9 deliberately points us forward to the cross. Deliberately hints at and foreshadows what's to come. Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. He has the ability to make friends with sinners because he will be the one to carry their cross. His friendship and his love for sinners will ultimately be displayed on Golgotha. He was able to to offer this man forgiveness because he knew that he himself would be the atoning sacrifice. The day would come when this man's sins would be paid for by Jesus' death. Jesus never offered him a bloodless remission of sin. Instead, he offered forgiveness, knowing that down the road he would be carrying this paralytic sin up Golgotha and would bear it on the tree on the, the hill of the skull. This is the same gospel for us. Jesus, Yahweh's salvation, Jesus, God's salvation, was wounded for our transgressions. He, Emmanuel, carried our cross. He, the suffering servant, received the nails of our condemnation. He, the Davidic king, wore the crown of our curse. Jesus, the one through whom all things were created, suffered as the people whom he made mocked him. And yet again, he, as the Lamb of God, declared his power to expunge the guilt of sin. Father, forgive them. At the ninth hour, about 3 p.m., Jesus, the Son of Man, cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Thus giving us one more declaration that he had come to receive forsakenness, to receive alienation, to receive condemnation for sin, to be put outside of the camp for our sake so that we could be brought near to God. Jesus, our righteousness, Jehovah to scan you, received the sting of death so that we would not receive that sting anymore, so that we could say, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? He took it for us. He, the beloved Son of God, was forsaken. And we have become friends of God. In this, the cross is the greatest proof that Jesus is friends of sinners like you and I. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus said that. And he said it in connection with his own death that was coming. When he would lay down his life, not just for his servants, not just for spiritual plebeians underneath him, but for his friends, sinners like us. 
After Jesus died, they took him down from the cross. They buried him in a nearby tomb. He was dead. Truly dead. Really dead. The Romans knew how to do their work. They, they knew not to be deceived by some man fainting on the cross. They were master executioners. He was dead. Spear through the heart, dead. Lifeless. They laid him in the tomb. But on the third day, the stone was rolled away. And Jesus was alive again. Just as the cross displays the love and friendship of Jesus, so also the resurrection stands as a perpetual reminder that we are friends of God forever. The cross shows us how we were made friends of God. The cross is the means by which we were made friends of God. The resurrection is ongoing eternal proof that we still are and forever will be friends of God. Listen to the great truth. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. Raised us up with him. Gave us a resurrection like his. Attached us to his life. Attached us to his resurrection and his defeat of the grave. Why? So that we could be seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Because the risen Lord is our friend, because the risen Lord is our physician, God's kindness will be poured out on us for all eternity. He healed us through his cross and he continues to maintain fellowship with us through the resurrection, guaranteeing that we will have life with God in God's presence forever and ever and ever. Now, if you're not a believer, this is the great truth that Christians cling to. We believe that Jesus is a friend of sinners. You can go explore explore the worldwide and, and explore all of its religions. The, the gods of the world demand that their people serve them. The gods of the world demand servants. But only the Christian God, only Christ, Emmanuel, God in flesh, has served us by dying for us. He serves us by giving us a resurrection like His. He doesn't just call us servants. He calls us friends. In John fifteen fifteen, He says, No longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. We have a God like none other. We have a God who bled and died, who bore the cross, who was buried and rose again and lives forevermore so that we could live forever with Him. He has prepared for us a table and one day when Christ comes back he will split the sky and we will feast forever people from every nation 
from China, from Russia, from Africa, from all over the world, from east and west, people of every social background, people of every intellectual level, people of every ethnicity, people from every language will come and sit and dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, sitting as friends, sitting as sons and daughters at the table of the Father, eating the kingdom's feast forever in the presence of Jesus Christ. So now we look forward to that day when our friend will return. When our friend will make all things new. When our friend will do away with all suffering. Raise our bodies from the grave. Do away from all curse. Do away with all the consequences of sin. Wipe away every tear from our our eyes. When our friend will bring down heaven to earth. And God will dwell with us forever. So we wait for that great wedding feast where we have a seat at the table in Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus, we implore you, we beg you to know Jesus as your friend who has the authority to forgive your sins, who invites you to sit at his table and who has displayed his great love for sinners on the cross and by raising again and leaving an empty tomb. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this great truth. Father, and I thank you as inadequate and as imperfect as a communicator as I am. God, I thank you that the gospel is simple. I thank you that the gospel is clear. We are great sinners, desperately alienated from you. But in Christ, we have been brought near to you. Because of his death, on the cross because he bled, because he suffered, because he took my condemnation. Now there is no condemnation for me in your presence. God, we love you and we thank you for the gospel that you have given us. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for this forever proof, for this ever memorial that reminds us that we are the friends of God, that we are the friends of Christ, and that we have been brought near to you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. God bless you, church. We love you. Happy Resurrection Day.